Hey everyone, Giordano here from the Juice Media. Welcome back to the Juice Media Podcast, a companion to the Honest Government ad series. In case you've been wondering why we've been quiet lately, we took a little production break in January so we could fix our set and upgrade the podcast rig. We also took Luca and Juno on their first camping trip and generally spent some time thinking, reading and recharging ahead of a new year of Honest Government ads. Our next video will be coming soon, but while we wait, I wanted to make a bonus podcast to help set the tone for the year ahead. As you've probably heard, this might be an election year for us here in Australia, which is why one of the key focus areas of the Honest Government ads, alongside the usual top shelf shitfuckery that's become the trademark of the Liberal National Party, will also be the critically important issues of climate and energy policy. That's why I thought it would be fitting to start the year here at the Juice Media by giving the mic to a climate scientist. And I have just the climate scientist we need. His latest book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet, just came out here in Australia last week and contains vital advice for understanding some of the emerging challenges we face in the decade ahead, including lessons for us here in Australia so we can be prepared for Scotty from marketing and Rupert from bullshitting as we head to the next election. I'm stoked to welcome back as my guest today on the Juice Media Podcast, Professor Michael Mann. Director of the Earth System Science Center at the Pennsylvania State University, Mann's work has contributed massively to the scientific understanding of climate change, most notably through his work on the famous hockey stick graph, for which has been mercilessly trolled by climate change deniers ever since. The recipient of dozens of prestigious awards, including his recent induction into the National Academy of Sciences, Mann now also holds the slightly less prestigious honor of being the first guest to return onto the Juice Media Podcast, where he joins me from his home in Pennsylvania. I hope you enjoy our conversation conversation and I'll catch you on the other side. Welcome back to the Juice Media Podcast, Professor Michael Mann. It's really great to have you back. It's great to be back with you, Girano. You have the honor of being the first person to come back for a second uh, interview on (laughs) on the show. So, uh, you know, I said at the end of our last conversation, I hoped you would come back and share some more time with us. And so it's really, I'm really grateful that you're here to do that today. Thank you. Now, it's my pleasure. When we last had you on the show back in February 2020, almost exactly a year ago, it was a different world. The COVID virus was not yet a global pandemic and the other virus was still president of the United States. And you had not yet published your book, The New Climate War, which uh, we'll speak about shortly. But one thing that has remained constant is the unfolding of the climate crisis, which has progressed largely as predicted by climate scientists such as yourself. Globally, according to NASA, 2020 was the hottest year on record, tying with 2016, the previous record. Now, this is our first podcast, in fact, our first video for 2021, and I thought that it's quite fitting to start off by giving the mic to a climate scientist to help set the scene for where we are and where we're heading. Your book, The New Climate War, um, does that. It's pretty much a, it maps uh, sort of a, um, charts uh, a path for what's lying ahead. What are the new challenges that we face? It's very well researched. You quote The Matrix, The Lord of the Rings, and other prestigious peer reviewed sources of the kind, <laughs> which I was glad to see. And it does a brilliant job of summing up. a diverse array of uh, resources. That's right. Yes. Gandalf makes an appearance. Look, it does a great job of summing up the shitfuckery uh, that's prevented action on, 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 on the climate crisis. But you also talk about how we're in a historic moment, which gives you cause for optimism. So I thought perhaps we could start off with talking about why you're cautiously optimistic, as you say. Yeah. I think that's a good way to start because a lot of people, when we talk about climate, they think, oh, my God, am I going to have to see a shrink or live in a bunker after listening to this podcast? So tell us why you're cautiously optimistic. 
Yeah, and you know, uh, I wrote a substantial part of that book when I was down in Australia last year on sabbatical as uh, you know, the, the black summer was playing out. And so there were reasons to be pessimistic um, when it comes to the impacts that we're now seeing. I mean, we're seeing catastrophic climate change impacts play out in real time now. But when we look at sort of the politics or the sociopolitics of the issue, uh, you know, today, I think there are some reasons for cautious optimism. Uh, the book went to press in August. And so at that point, I didn't actually know with certainty uh, who the next president would be. But I uh, was fairly confident that there was a shift in the political winds uh, afoot and that we would see a Democratic president, uh, Joe Biden, probably a divided Congress. That's sort of where I, I saw things, um, you know, uh, I anticipated things would be, and that's exactly where we are. Uh, we have Joe Biden as president. Um, he has, you know, he campaigned on climate. He has a, a mandate on climate, and he has made good on his commitments, um, proposing, you know, what is arguably the boldest set of executive actions that any American president has ever proposed um, to deal with the climate crisis. Uh, there is a split Senate 50-50, but Democrats do control the gavel uh, because the vi vice president to the Democratic vice president breaks the tie. And that means that unlike what we saw under Mitch McConnell, Democrats will be able to bring climate bills to the floor. And I think they'll be able to pass them. So we will see climate legislation that will complement a very bold agenda um, that we're seeing from uh, Joe Biden, who you know, has come as close as a president could come to implementing a Green New Deal. And I say that because there's a limit to what the chief executive alone uh, can do um, when it comes to carbon pricing, uh, subsidies, renewable energy, a lot of the, the, the mechanisms that we need in place, we're gonna need legislation to complement that. Uh, but look, you know, the United States is back. The US is back, leading once again on this issue. I think that has huge implications for the geopolitics. Uh, you know, uh, Prime Minister, Australian Prime Minister, uh, um, you know, uh, Scott Morrison can no longer hide behind a denialist climate pres uh, American president, a climate denialist American president, which he was able to do. As long as Trump was, you know, the titular head of the United States, it allowed um, sort of fossil fuel friendly politicians in other countries to sort of hide behind that. And now I think uh, there's gonna be a lot of pressure um, on uh, Morrison to not just talk a good game, which he's trying to do, but actually to put meaningful policies behind that. And I think there'll be a reckoning um, at the polls if he fails to do that. So I do think we're now seeing an ushering in of a new era where it's possible to imagine real bold global action on climate for the first time in years. It's good that you mentioned the political um, angle, and thank you for mentioning uh, our own Prime Minister Scott Morrison, because it certainly feels like we are, Australia has suddenly overnight become this uh, lone pariah in terms of climate inaction. And, um, Which is so unfortunate, because the Australian people are, you know, are there. I mean, I spent time down there. Uh, the people, you know, want to do something. They've got the problem is they don't have representation. Uh, well, look, this is going to, probably going to be an election year. So um, 
let's see what if those views that you know that you say that that Australians have translate into into something effective. Not that I want to get too much into a political conversation here about Australia. We know Australia really did have a profound. I mean, the book. You know, I, I talk about Australia quite a bit because it really did have an influence on on my outlook on, on this problem. Totally. And look, I I hope that uh, at this at this coming election, which as I said might be this year. We do see the electorate really voting on on this issue, um, but uh, Scott Morrison is a very sneaky character. It is very good at sensing the political winds, and he's quite capable of announcing out of the blue, "Oh, we will have a net zero emission target by 2050," which he knows he doesn't have to do anything about for a long time. Empty so he can just take yeah. the the the, the, sail, the wind out of the sails of the Democratic Party. So whereas Trump was an easy opponent in that sense because he was such a fumbling, you know, the climate denying moron. Um, here we actually have a, a very skilled marketing expert who knows how to twist and use just the right words to make people think that he's going to fix the problem. Right. When yeah. in fact, he's going to fuck off to Hawaii and, you know, send thoughts and prayers. <laughs> As he did a year ago when you were suffering through the record heat and, and drought and bushfires and he was off vacationing in Hawaii. One of the key propositions of the new climate war is that we're entering a new phase of what you call a climate war. You say, whereas the first phase of this war was about fighting outright climate denial, this next phase is about taking on softer forms of denial, which nevertheless pose a direct threat to meaningful climate action. These are the multiple fronts of the new climate war, you write. Disinformation, deceit, divisiveness, deflection, delay, despair-mongering, and doomism. That's a really good collection of Ds. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about what you characterize as this stage of the new climate war? Give us, give us a snapshot um, and perhaps some examples of this new phase. And as you can see, I'm all about uh, alliteration uh, when I can pull it off. And, you know, it just so happens that all those terms really do describe the, uh, the battle that we face ahead. Um, it's just not credible, right, to say that climate change isn't happening. If you're in Australia and you lived through the, the Black Summer, and I think even the, the Murdoch media, and I cite some examples of the Murdoch media because they've played um, such a villainous role, um, and they continue to, but even they have shifted in their rhetoric. Um, so as we get away from denial, and I do think the, the battle, you know, the, the, the old climate war, which was a war on the science, on the evidence, uh, attacks against climate scientists like myself, um, that war is largely over for that reason. Um, it, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure that, you know, the, the fossil fuel interests, the politicians uh, in their pay have seen the focus group results. They've seen the polling. They know it doesn't cut it anymore. So here's the thing. Um, you can't deny it's happening. <clears throat> if you're the fossil fuel industry or the Murdoch press that does their dirty work for them or uh, the, you know, uh, the politicians um, in their hip pocket, and I put uh, Morrison in that category, and much of the uh, the um, you know the 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 the, um, um, the liberal uh, um, the, you know the, the national coalition um, uh, as well, whether you're denying that climate change is real, or saying that it's not a problem, uh, or the solution is individual behavior. We don't need policies. We don't need a price on carbon. We don't need uh, subsidies for renewable energy or, um, you know, all the way to, well, you know what, it's too late to do anything about it anyway. Um, and that's where doomism and despair mongering come in. And we do see conservative interests actually pushing uh, those sorts of narratives because it does lead to disengagement. Ironically, among the very people who would most 
likely be engaged, sort of the progressive um, environmental uh, sort of um, contingent uh, who have are been especially, I think, um, prone to that sort of framing. Um, and they've been weaponized, you know, a lot, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, who uh, with the best of intentions and goodwill have been led to believe that it's, you know, too late to do anything about it. And so they've been weaponized by the forces of inaction, the inactivists, as I call them in the book. Um, these are all the tactics that they're now using because they can't deny it's real, but anything they can do to thwart efforts to actually solve the problem in a meaningful way, um, which is to put in place policies, the very policies that, you know, Morrison, for example, refuses to, um, to support, right? So he says he wants Australia now to go carbon neutral because it's expected. There's a lot of um, pressure now on Australia um, with the, the Biden victory. But when you look at what Morrison is saying, right? Um, he's talking about a, a gas-driven economy. So, you know, natural gas, as if the solution to a problem created by fossil fuels can be a fossil fuel. It just doesn't make sense. But it's a way to sound like you're supporting some sort of solution and talk about resilience and, you know, and uh, um, uh, economic, we just need to sort of unleash the free market um, and market innovation uh, will solve this problem for us. Well, no, market innovation alone won't solve a problem when there isn't a price signal for the damage that's being done by the emission of carbon pollution into the atmosphere. That's why Australia had an emissions trading scheme. And within nine months of um, it putting that in place, emissions dropped 10%. Uh, it was highly successful. Um, and then of course, uh, the, um, you know, uh, Tony, uh, 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 yeah, Tony, uh, yeah, Abbott, um, you know, uh, the Abbott administration came in, got rid of it. It was vilified by the Murdoch media. Um, and so ironically, people say, well, look, you know, we tried carbon pricing in Australia and it didn't work. No, it worked great. In it fact, did, it yeah. worked so well that the fossil fuel industry and the p politicians in their pay did everything they could to get rid mm -hmm. of it. Not only did they get rid of it, but that whole period of history has been completely erased from the historical consciousness right. of Australians to the point where it's almost unknown, where it's actually, you know, and there's a great graph that shows emissions and they're going up, 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 up. And then when the when we finally had the the, uh, the, the government that brought in the emission trading scheme, which was actually yeah. a coalition government between uh, the Labour Party and the Greens Party. Gillard, we, uh, Gillard when it was prime minister. Yeah, that's right. Um, we had an emission training scheme and you can see the emissions dropping. And then yeah. as soon as Abbott came in and ripped it apart, <laughs> it comes, you see it rebounding and, and it it's been going up ever since. It's the poster child, mm. um, Giordano. It's the poster child for why carbon pricing works. Mm. I tell people, look at Australia. It yeah. worked. Carbon emissions came down. And by the way, all of the 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 uh, fear mongering about you know how prices would go up actually the opposite happened mm. low income uh, families low income earners actually gained because mm. the revenue was returned right. progressively it was about 7 billion dollars of revenue that was uh, yeah. very purposefully redirected into low income yeah. families there were tax incentives and all the sort which puts a lie to the the claim that you know that, uh, and you make this point in your book that you know carbon pricing schemes and I'm not like, I'm not someone who is like pro uh, uh, economic solutions to all of these problems, but I have to recognize that, you know, as you say in the book, uh, uh, emission trading schemes, carbon pricing, it can be crafted in a way that is 
just, you know, that actually uh, exactly. is progressive in, in, in its application. And the one we had here was definitely um, a, a good scheme as, as far as, was as Canada. solutions Canada. Right. Canada as well has implemented it in a progressive way. And so the places where it's actually been implemented, <laughs> um, it's worked and it's actually be, been implemented in a progressive way. But uh, I you know, agree with your larger point here. Look, that's just one of the tools in the toolbox. All yeah. right? And carbon pricing isn't a cure-all. It's not a magic bullet, um, but it's one of the tools that we have. And we need to use every single tool we have to solve this problem. Which leads really nicely into the next question I want to ask you about the, uh, your book, the, Cli the New Climate War. Yeah. Look, one of the things that I really like about the book is that you identify a number of debates or polar sort of oppositions in, in the discourse, in the public discourse. And rather than sort of using this as a platform to say, well, that's wrong and this is right, you say what you've just said a few moments ago that, you know, we have a whole range of tools and we have to use them all and we have to get out of this mentality of arguing with each other about which is the best solution yeah. and actually recognize that they all have a role to play. One of the, the debates that you key in on is this debate between individual and collective action. Can you speak a little, a little bit about this um, the seeming uh, paradox between do we take individual action on climate or do we take collective action? Yeah, no, thanks for, for asking about that because it is a central point of the book. Uh, you know, the bottom line is, look, we need both, right? <laughs> it's like we were saying, we need every tool in the toolbox. We need individual uh, action. We need collective action. We need systemic um, action, systemic change. Um, what we can't allow is for the inactivists, uh, those who don't want to see policy um, incentives for renewables that don't want carbon pricing. They don't want anything that will actually impact in a negative way the fossil fuel industry. Um, it's very convenient for them to direct attention entirely away from the need for systemic change in policy to individual action. And we've seen that in the past. Um, and in the book, I go into sort of the history of deflection campaigns. Here in the United States, there was a classic deflection campaign back in the early 1970s when I was just, you know, I was five or six years old. I remember this commercial, this very powerful commercial. We call it the Crying Indian uh, commercial. And it was um, <laughs> the person who played the Native American in full headdress um, was actually an Italian American. Um, the actor's name was Iron Eyes uh, Cody. And that was the least of the subterfuge <laughs> that was behind that advertising campaign. It was intended to convince us that all these bottle, all this bottle and can waste that was accumulating in the countryside and, and causing this Native American a single tear to run down his face at the end uh, with the uh, voiceover, uh, people cause pollution, only people can solve it or clean it up or something like that. And the idea was that this the accumulating bottle and can litter around our nation um, was due to our, you know, bad behavior. Well, you know, some environmental groups had originally signed on to this public service announcement, but eventually they learned that they'd been had. This was a propaganda campaign hatched on Madison Avenue by Coca-Cola and the beverage industry because they didn't want to see bottle bills passed in the various states that required deposit on bottles and cans. It would lead to people returning them. They'd have to process that, um, the, the returned bottles and cans. It would, you know, hurt their profits. And so instead, they invested in this massive campaign to convince us that the problem was us. We didn't need systemic policies to solve this problem. Um, we can thank the beverage industry now for one of the other major global environmental crises we face today, uh, global plastic pollution. We can thank them and the deflection campaign of the crying Indian 
for where we are now with that crisis. And so the fossil fuel industry, they're aware of that playbook and it's been very successful. Even the New York Times often frames climate solutions almost exclusively in terms of our diet, our travel, um, you know, uh, whether we've chosen to have children. Um, that framing has even been bought into by, you know, some of our leading, you know, um, you know, some of our most objective and highest profile uh, media outlets. And so it's been extremely effective. And so the problem is, yeah, we should do those things, right? We should all do those things that, you know, decrease our carbon footprint, our environmental footprint. They often save us money. They make us um, you know, healthier. Uh, they set a great example for other people, make us feel better about ourselves. Why wouldn't we do those things? Of course we should do them. What we can't allow is for them to be focused on exclusively to the exclusion of the systemic changes that we need, because that takes all of the pressure off of the bad actors, the fossil fuel industry, um, and it keeps us addicted ultimately to fossil fuels. So that's really the point, to recognize that um, they are, you know, the forces of inaction, the inactivists, as I call them in the book, um, have actually been seeding online, you know, discussions, they use troll, uh, uh, trolls and bot armies to get us arguing with each other about our individual behavior, it's a threefer, okay? It actually plays into three of the new climate war tactics because it deflects attention away from systemic solutions to individual behavior. It gets us finger pointing and carbon shaming each other. So it divides us um, as, as, a, as a community and we no longer speak with a single voice demanding action. And it's a great way to tar and discredit some of our most important thought leaders and opinion leaders. And I use the example in the book of uh, your mayor, or not your mayor, sorry, this, the mayor of Sydney, where I was uh, doing my sabbatical, Clover Moore, mm -hmm. who I actually got to know when I was there. She's been a real leader um, when it comes to climate action in uh, Australia. And she's been vilified by the Murdoch press, even to the point, as you probably know, where they forged documents, um, the, uh, the, the conservative government forged documents to, to, to try to claim that her and her office, you know, had an outsized carbon footprint. Um, they were mm. tr using air travel uh, to an extent that, um, you know, they were, uh, you know, they were really contributing uh, to, to this problem. Uh, it wasn't true. The claims were forged, but it was an effort to try to discredit Clover Moore mm. because she has played an important role. We see the same thing with John Kerry, who's our uh, new special envoy on climate here in the United States. responsible for had the same treatment. Al Gore had the same treatment for a long Al, time. Al Gore, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, and I document that in the book, but with just within the past couple of weeks, we've seen that campaign turned on John Kerry because he's now the special envoy on climate for Joe right. Biden, uh, responsible for our international diplomatic efforts on climate. And so they've focused in the Murdoch press. It's, it's the same, the usual suspects have published all sorts of articles, Fox News complaining about his air travel. Let's make it all about John Kerry's Mm. carbon footprint because it plays into three of these new war tactics at the same time. Mm. You make a really good point when you talk about, I think, uh, is Leonardo DiCaprio said the accusation of hypocrisy isn't actually accurate. It doesn't apply. Can you just explain that? Because everyone thinks they're being very clever. You know, like for, this is applied also to the, the student strikers. Whenever they go on, on yeah. strike, you see people in the comments going, oh, well, I hope they gave up all their iPhones and iPads and they did they call public <laughs> transport to the protests. And they think they're being clever because they, they think that they're showing that these people are all hypocrites. 
Yeah. Can, can you just unpack that logic fallacy there? Because yeah, thanks for asking about that. Because yeah, it's such a bad faith argument, um, and it, it it's it, it extremely uh, cynical and exploitive. And it is, it's exploitive because look, we're not saying we have to all live off the grid um, and and no longer use any. No, almost to a person, the folks we're talking about advocate for working within the system that exists to change that system for the better. Um, and, you know, uh, to be an effective spokesperson for this issue, you have to work within the system that exists. Um, if I was living in a shack in Montana without electricity, uh, I wouldn't be able to get my message out nearly as effectively. Uh, and so it's a diversionary tactic. It is, once again, it's that deflection, right? But, but we're all That's arguing about changing argument. the system for the better. Yeah, it's a it, complete straw man. Yep. I want to ask you about, you've just mentioned uh, doomism. You dedicate a whole chapter to this uh, phenomenon. And I think you, you, you very wisely, you, you do that because I think it, it is something that is an emergent uh, pattern of thought that's really kind of becoming more mainstream in public discourse. How do you define doomerism and, and why do you see it as such a threat to climate action? So, you know, there are some extreme examples we can look at. Um, you know, there is uh, one character that I talk about in the book, and I won't name him. You can read the book. Uh, um, he, he's become a very prominent, almost cult figure here in the United States uh, with the Doomism movement. Um, I refer to him as Dr. Doom. <laughs> he is a PhD. He is a doctor. And he's been spreading this message of doom. Um, and uh, he insists that there's nothing we can do within the next 10 years. And I believe this is like five years ago. So mark your calendar. Now we only have five years left um, before all of humanity um, will be gone and all living things on the planet will be gone because of some exponential climate change, whatever that's supposed to mean. And look, you know, I don't know why um, he promotes that. And I'm not saying he's an agent of the fossil fuel industry. Um, uh, but what I can say is that sort of messaging has been seized upon by the inactivists. Um, uh, it's very useful to them if they can lead, once again, to disengagement of the very people who would most likely it would be most likely to be on the front lines demanding action, environmental progressives, right? If you can convince them it's too late to do anything, um, look, the inactivists don't care about the path you take. They just care about the destination, whether it's because you deny climate change is real or you think it's too late to do anything about it. If it leads you to the same place of inaction, then it's a win for them. And so they have fanned those flames. There's no question. And a lot of people of goodwill and good intentions, friends of ours, people we know um, who are on the right side of this issue uh, are victims uh, of this, um, this, this disinformation campaign. And we need to sort of help them out of that. And one of the ways to help them out of that is to just be truthful about what the science says. The science doesn't support that exponential runaway warming scenario. The best available science tells us now that if we stop burning carbon, global surface temperatures um, stabilize within a few years. Now, certain things like the ice sheets may continue to lose ice, sea level uh, rise might continue for, so I don't wanna be Pollyannish here. There are some impacts that will continue to play out. There is a long legacy of the, the impact that we've already had. But in terms of the warming of the surface of the planet and the extreme weather events tied to that, um, that 
you know, all that sort of flattens out pretty quickly if we stop burning carbon. And that's what the best available science tells us now. And so there is a direct and immediate impact of our efforts now to reduce carbon emissions. And that's really important because as I say in the book, and I say in just about every interview, we need to pair urgency. And there is great urgency in acting now uh, in a concerted fashion, but there's also agency. We can act it's not too late. Now, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the science. I was going to say, let, can we call upon your, you know, your credentials to give us a sense of, you know, what, what is an accurate level of alarm? And, you know, you, you make it clear, yes, the truth is bad enough. I think that's the name of the chapter where you talk about doomism. It, it is, yeah. The truth is bad enough. <clears throat> and I, I would say, you know, let's not wait for the doomers to be right, you know, because eventually if we carry on like this, they will be, tr they will be correct. Like, you that's know, the great they, irony, isn't it? Yeah. If we listen to the doomers, that is actually most likely to lead to doom itself. Right. It's like the, um, the great FDR quote, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself. Right. Uh, there's nothing that will ensure doom more than doomism itself. I want to say, I want to say something about uh, doomism before, before on, on that point, just still on the science. When you say the science doesn't support some of these uh, worst case scenarios, which, you know, without getting into it, basically is, you know, human civilization is going to be wiped out. We're going to have crop failures. We're going to have mass hunger. Billions of people are going to die. Um, when you say that uh, the science doesn't support that, you're basing that, at, at least in the book, you mentioned the 2014 IPCC report, which is the last assessment report, but that's 2014. Clear, by the way, what you just said, the things you just described, those can happen. Right. If we fail to act, yes. we, we do inherit a dystopian future, not like, unlike, you know, the Mad, Mad Max, Max yeah. uh, South Australia. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you're saying at the moment, the current predictions don't, don't support that in the, in the space of the next, you know, 10 years or 20 years, uh, it, even in the business as usual scenario doesn't support that. You're basing that on the, the 2014 IPCC uh, assessment report, which is now coming to six years old. Um, and we're about to see a new assessment report coming out in this June, which is going to be a very big, uh, a very, uh, it's going to be a massive, um, publication of which sets the scene for where we are at now. Do you have any uh, insight into the, into the forthcoming IPC assessment report? Are you involved in that? Can you give us any sort of sense of what it's telling us or is that all kind of very embargoed top secret? Here's the, the boring, you know, dirty secret about the IPCC reports. They have to be based on the existing peer reviewed scientific literature, right? Those are the rules, right? Of the assessments are based. So there are no surprises right. to the scientists. We already know <laughs> um, to the public that isn't, you know, immersed in this on a day to day basis and reading the peer reviewed literature. Um, these are an opportunity for sort of a, a reckoning for uh, taking stock of where we are. And, and so it is important from that standpoint. But if you're a scientist, um, there are no surprises if you're a scientist working in this field because we know the literature on which the, the report has to be based. And the, the sort of assessment that I described of where we are is based on the latest literature. Um, so there was a special report actually just a couple of years ago by the IPCC. There are the major IPCC uh, assessment reports. And then there are these interim reports uh, that look at specific issues. And there was a report a couple of years ago, um, the special report uh, number 15, on one and a half degree uh, Celsius warming, um, looking at what is necessary from a carbon emissions reduction standpoint to avoid one and a half Celsius warming, which is a reasonable sort of 
a reasonable threshold for defining where we really start to see the worst impacts of climate change. Right. And so you can do the math. Um, the notion of a carbon budget, so we now talk about a carbon budget. There's a certain amount of carbon that we have left that we can burn and hope to keep uh, temperatures below that level. And the reason that makes sense, the reason that we can talk about a carbon budget is because we now understand that the warming level we arrive at is a function of the cumulative emissions up to that point. This is in different language what I was saying before. Um, how the, 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 the sort of the warming plateau that we end up with is determined by our cumulative emissions up to that point in time. Another way of saying that is if we stop burning carbon, we hit that plateau, that's where we are. Now, some of the doomism uh, that you know uh, you're alluding to is based, for example, on the idea that that isn't true. That supposedly the warming is going to trigger a massive release of methane from the Arctic, and we run away uh, methane warming. Um, and it's sort of predicated in part on past geological episodes, which are no um, no analog for for what we're talking about today. Some of the great extinction events, geological extinction events, may have been associated with massive um, releases of methane. And so that's sort of, doomers, doomers have sort of uh, sort of grabbed a hold of that, um, those sort of geological, past geological episodes as sort of a, as a framing uh, for, you know, what we're in store for. But there is no evidence at this point that we've triggered substantial release of methane from the Arctic. Um, there is an increase in methane concentrations in the atmosphere and we can look at the chemical fingerprint. It's coming from natural gas extraction, from fracking. Right. Um, so there is no evidence that we're seeing a massive methane feedback yeah. that is going to, and those sorts of feedbacks are incorporated into the models that we're talking about. So right. the science doesn't support the doomest and, and all of the doomist narratives um, that you read, and I refer to a whole bunch of them, David Wallace Wells in Uninhabitable Earth, when you look at every single one of them, they are premised invariably on this Arctic methane, uh, runaway methane scenario that is not grounded in the science. Now, it's not the fault uh, so much of the journalists who have grabbed a hold of that, because that narrative was being put out there mm -hmm. Um, they've grabbed hold of it. And so it has led to this genre of doomism that's premised on bad science. That's the bottom line. I'm glad you said that because I think that ultim ultimately, you know, one of the, the, the refrains that we always, that, you know, that we always use in the face of climate denials, listen to the scientists. But I think that is the same thing that we need to say to also to people who are freaking out and kind of really kind of going, all is lost. We can't do anything. It's that's like, right. yeah, yeah, okay, look, things are bad. But don't stop listening to the climate scientists, please. So thank you this for- This is what Greta, Greta Thunberg says, right? Listen to scientists. Right. And, and yeah, and listen to Greta. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for, um, for, for giving us that, that synopsis. I hope people who need to hear that, hear that. Um, I just want to say, say one thing, um, not, not, not to sort of um, uh, extend the debate, because I know we're close to our, um, coming close to our end of our interview, but no I just worries. wanted to make yeah. a comment of this, because I think there's a lot of people in the audience at the Juice Media who do identify as doomers, and I, <laughs> I, I just want to say something, you know, which I think I've been thinking about it a lot, um, and, you know, in fact, I think that I consider myself a doomer in, in also in, in a sense, we, I literally wrote an honest government ad, which was entitled, We're Fucked, um, and it was, <laughs> it was in that crucial year of 2019, when the world was on fire, and it right. really felt like things were falling apart that year. 
uh, we had no idea that 2020 was around the corner, but in 2019, that's how it felt. But then for me, at least, that feeling of doom quickly helped me to energize and mobilize and inspire yeah. me to fight yeah. harder rather than give yeah. up. So anyway, a few weeks ago, I posted something on social media about doomism. And I actually got some really thoughtful responses that made me realize that label doomer itself can be problematic in the same way that the label boomer is, is often problematic. Uh, you know, um, it's problematic, I think, when it's applied too loosely, because yes, there are merchants of doom who make a living out of it. And, and you've identified them in your book. But then there are a lot of people who um, identify them with a the term, but they're also passionately committed to action. And I just want to read a couple of their responses uh, from, yeah. from this post. This is something that one person said. Doomerism is a stage of climate grief. It's the darkest phase when you cannot see any hope. Some people get stuck in it. Others find a way out. I found hope in permaculture and by becoming politically active for the first time in my life. Then somebody responded and said, exactly, hitting rock bottom after coming to terms with our current predicament is part of the process. Then turning that into action is next. And then someone else wrote, doomers are our allies but they need time to process. It's an interesting question. How many doomers become activists and vice versa? Maybe climate psychologists have already asked this question. And then someone else, a final quote that I wanna read out says, there are new people all the time learning about how bad it really is and they need a little time to process. If we shame those trying to process the climate crisis for not taking action, this makes it likely that more of them will get stuck and can't make the transition to activism they'll feel that they're not welcome. If we, if we don't divide the climate movement and encourage everyone to move forward and take action, no matter how bad they think it is, this will be better for all of us. So I thought I would just read that out because I think it's yeah. relevant to the overall um, message of your book, which is all about, you know, one of the key lessons is the dangers posed by attempts to divide the climate movement. Sure. In activists, you write, want us arguing with your neighbor. You, they want you arguing with your neighbor about who is the most carbon pure, dividing advocates so they can't speak with a united voice. And I wonder whether this wedge that's, that is being driven between activists, so-called activists and so-called doomers, is part of one of those things that we need to be mindful of and be careful of. So I personally uh, am being more cautious with how I use the Duma label. I, mean, I think I'm going to use it more about the people who spread that thing, you know, that, that message. And that's how rather I than int- the people who yeah, carry absolutely. it. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. And, th- and that's my intention. And if it doesn't come across uh, clearly enough in the book, then, then it's, I, I, I apologize because uh, I do think that that distinction is essential. And I do try to draw that distinction between the you victims do. of this yes. framing, people who fall into despair. And I, and I do talk about, you know, uh, there is some um, discussion about that, about how it's understandable that some people can fall into despair and we have to sort of help them out of that. And I think the examples that you give to me are very encouraging and inspiring because what you've described um, aren't terminal doomers. <laughs> right. Um, they're people who've gone through that phase, but it, but it's actually in the end sort of empowered them to to get back out of that and um, and to be, um, you know, and to be engaged ultimately. And so, you know, for those people, I see that that's great. I, I think what's important. I think it's difficult to get through that stage and emerge if you fundamentally are convinced that it's all over. There's got to be some hope. And so where I sort of become uncomfortable is when bad science, you know, uh, runaway methane warming is used to create this sort of narrative of, um, 
of unavoidable doom because then there's no place to go. No, absolutely. Um, and so, one, you know, in interviews at, uh, at times, I've said, I don't like the sort of question, are we effed? <laughs> I won't say the word, uh, but um, my daughter might be listening upstairs. Uh, I did get you to say shitfuckery on our last podcast. But <laughs> <I did. laughs> you've got to promote a one book of the now. Great, so you have to be one of the great words of 2020. Maybe it was the greatest word introduced into our lexicon <laughs> in 2020. Um, I would certainly nominate it for that. But, um, you know, it's not, are we effed? or are we not effed? It's how effed are we? Yep. Look, people in Australia who lived through the, the Black Summer, a lot of them, you know, it was a disaster. People lost um, their homes. Some people lost their lives. Um, we lost precious ecosystems that will never be returned to where they were. Um, so dangerous climate change has arrived. Um, and in to, to me, it's almost, cathartic in a way to recognize that, to accept that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, if you're yeah. Puerto Rico, if the, you're the Western United States, if you're the Gulf Coast that just lived through a record hurricane season here in the United States, um, if you're a low-lying island nation, um, so many places now, dangerous climate change has arrived. And so if we can accept that, then we can understand it's not binary. It's not effed or not effed. It's how effed. And what how can bad we, are and we what willing can we, to let it get? That's right. That's and, it. What are we going to do about it? We can it? prevent the worst impacts. We can still do that. And the greatest threat, in my view, to us not doing that is for us to start to believe that it's impossible to make any progress at all. Right. And I, th I, I think we... I think everyone listening to that would agree. Uh, so thanks for thanks for providing that frame. Um, I... I if, if I might be allowed, I just want to make a comment, like, you know, as you know, I read your book yeah. and I really enjoyed it. And, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've really, I, I see, I really think it's a, it's a manifesto of sorts for, for the climate movement. And it has a lot for so many people. I'm interested in your framing of it as a war. I know you've mentioned that at, at the start and various points that, you know, some of your colleagues have, uh, have questioned yeah. your framing, but you, you're very explicit about it. You, you know, you use a lot of military metaphors, you know, rear, rear, rear reaction and, you know, there's advance and, and battle and, you right. know, you really encourage people to see it in this frame. And I, I get, I get why. I don't think it's, you know, just a, uh, it is, I don't think it's just a marketing sort of strategy to make it exciting. I think, you know, I think the way you, you define it as a war is um, the stakes are so high that it's an accurate metaphor to use. Um, it is important though, just to step in there, because I understand where people become uncomfortable, like, because it sounds like we are fighting a war against somebody. Mm -hmm. And that's not really what I'm talking about. There is a war that we're in, whether we like it or not, it wasn't of our choosing, but fossil fuel interests and those promoting um, their agenda have you know funded this multi-billion-dollar campaign to prevent us from acting on the greatest crisis that we face as a civilization? Um, so, though it isn't one of our own choosing, we are in this war where they you know bad actors are uh, using tremendous uh, resources and weapons um, in their effort to block progress on this issue, and so. Yeah, I do embrace that framing, but I'm not saying that we should be warlike in our mentality so much as we need to recognize that we are embattled, um, mm -hmm. you know, not not by our own choosing, and we need to fight back um, mm -hmm. using, you know, in a way that is um, 
that de defends our, our values. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and it's okay to fight the good fight, right? <laughs> I totally um, vibe with that framing. And I understand, you know, that there's a sort of a sense of like, let's not frame it as fighting and battling. But I, I, see, I understand where people are coming from. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, but here's something that I, that I, that I wanted to, to say on, on if it is going to be framed as a war, and look, I know that your book is already comprehensive and it ties together so many things and no book can cover everything. But if I had one wish for something to be discussed in it, which I feel isn't, yeah. is the role of indigenous people in the context of, of this climate war. And by that, I mean that historically indigenous people are the ones who have literally experienced this as a war, not metaphorically, first by way of invasion of their lands, which were mined for the very fossil fuels that are now at the root of the crisis. And and that's secondly, true in Australia and it's true in the US, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And secondly, because... Indigenous people are often on the physical territorial front lines of the fight to preventing deforestation and the expansion of the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. Witness the fight at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline, the fight against various pipelines in Canada that propose to carry tar sands and fracked gas uh, uh, across the unceded lands of the Unistotan peoples. Uh, and various indigenous-led battles here in Australia against the fracking in the Northern Territory and the Adani coal mine. But also there's a growing awareness that Indigenous people play a key role as agents of conservation and successful stewardship of the planet. And that key part of the solution, not just to the climate crisis, but also the biodiversity and habitat, habitat loss crises, consists of listening to Indigenous peoples and elevating their voices alongside those of climate scientists. And yeah, um, yeah I, that, just an observation. I feel I, like if it's going to be framed as a war they play a really important role in that in that in that frame that's that's a fair uh, it's a fair point and you know there are dimensions of this problem that i am regretful i i didn't you, you can only sort of choose so many battles um and and still keep it to like the 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 length limits that your tough editor is imposing on you it's always a fight right between we want to put more in the editor wants to, you know, our editors understandably want to keep it manageable so that people will read it. Um, that is an invaluable perspective. It is a very important part of the discussion. Um, it isn't something that I, you know, uh, gave as much space to as I, I would like to. Um, and there are other things, you know, even sort of the the, the sort of um, the social justice movement and the climate justice movement in the United States, which is an important part of where we are now, part of why I'm optimistic, where we've made the progress we have. And, and, and there are other books. What I'll say in my defense is there are other very um, worthy uh, books that do go into those dimensions of, of the problem and, and do complement sort of the, the approach that I take in this book. Thanks for commenting on that. It's just an observation, but you know, it's uh, it's good to hear it's your thoughts. Fair one, yeah. I yeah. I try to end each podcast with a big picture question, and we've, we're coming to the end of, uh, of of this episode. So, I want to, by way of conclusion, ask you to comment. Um, you know, we I opened with the first question about why you're optimistic. Um, here at the Juice Media, I often use a term which I call "history is happening," which is a concept that I often reference in the videos as a way of drawing our attention, our consciousness to the fact that we live in historic times, right. that, that we are literally making, writing history. And there are, time, there are times when that is particularly apparent. And I think your book, uh, The New Climate War, which I guess I said, we'll put a link in the show notes in the video description for anyone who wants to check it out, really does that. It really draws our attention to this historic moment wherein you say, you know, you call this a perfect storm. You say we're approaching a tipping point on climate. 
And one of the things that you, that you, that you highlight as a factor for making you cautiously optimistic is the role of children in bringing about this tipping point that you see coming up ahead. Up ahead. By way of conclusion, can you just perhaps reflect on this historic moment we're in, specifically on the role of children and why that makes you so optimistic? Yeah, I mean, because ultimately to me, the, the youth climate movement, uh, Greta Thunberg, but all of the youth climate uh, advocates in Australia, the, the United States and around the world um, uh, have recentered this issue, right? For too long, we've allowed climate change to be sort of framed in a very technocratic way. And this is a pet peeve of mine that, um, oh, it's just about economics and science and we can take the scenarios and we can do a cost benefit analysis and that will give us an optimal trajectory. I mean, no, <laughs> that it's about so much more than that. It is about what sort of planet we want to live on, what sort of planet we want to leave behind for our children and grandchildren. And, and Greta and the other youth uh, climate advocates have really recentered the conversation. They've drawn our attention to the fact that this is really about our ethical obligation not to destroy this planet for the people who didn't create the problem in the first place. And, and, and that includes, for example, um, you know, people outside the industrial world, um, the indigenous people that we were talking about, they had very little, if any, role in creating this problem and they're gonna bear the brunt of it. But this is also true intergenerationally. It's our children and grandchildren who will bear the brunt of a problem that we've created. And so it is, to me, the greatest ethical crisis and the greatest ethical challenge of our time. And the youth climate movement allowed us to frame it that way. They've shifted the Overton window, as we call it. They've Absolutely. made this now the, the new focus of, of the conversation. And it's a very- and the Murdoch media realized yeah. um, it's very treacherous to attack children. They <laughs> yes. couldn't go after yeah. them with the usual weapons that they will use against yeah. the rest of us. Yeah. Um, and, you know, something Tony Abbott, who you mentioned before, is the, you know, the, the prime minister who wrecked our, our one and only right. climate legislation. He said yep. when he was un, when he lost his seat at the last federal election, so he was voted out uh, uh, by an independent candidate, Zali Stegall, who campaigned. Oh, she was on, wonderful. I, I got to meet uh, Zali. Right. She is amazing. Yeah. Right. She kicked out a former prime minister, which was a big upset for the Liberal Party. Um, and he said in his concession speech, he was very candid and he said something that I'll always remember. He said, Where climate change is a moral issue, we Liberals do it tough. Where climate change is an economic issue, as the result tonight shows, we do very, very well. So by shifting the Overton window as the climate, the youth climate movement has done, as, as you say, as you just said, and making it an ethical issue, which it absolutely is, as well as a technical issue, an economic issue, um, it absolutely changes the, the playing field. And I feel like that totally justifies your claim that, you know, we are in a new era now. It is a new climate war because along with that, the, the forces of denial, along with the, you know, the lessons that we've learned from the bushfires, it's now it sets a new stage. In a, and I do feel like historically, we will look back at this period and go, this was a crucial turning point. And even the pandemic uh, played into, and I talk about that in the final chapter of the book, all these threads have come together in a way um, that has created just this remarkable opportunity. And we have to take full advantage of it. Absolutely. And thank you for uh, bringing all those threads together. As I said, the book really paints a, a beautiful picture of where we are in history and, and where we're heading. So thank you, Michael Mann. Um, I want to thank you. I want to end by thank you for everything you've done for, for the book, but also all your work. At the end of your book, you credit the new generation of children who've managed to place this crisis, the climate crisis on the front page. And you're absolutely right to do that. But um, I also want to say that we owe 
you and your generation, uh, you know, thanks for what you've done. You took the heat early on. You know, you were one of the people who really kind of got smacked around quite heavily for, for your work in this. And it would have been hardest and riskiest uh, back in the 90s to really be saying, hey, look at these graphs, you know, look at our temperature, find, look at these findings. And, um, you know, people came after you and uh, I can see why you see it as a war because you've really been in, 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 in the battle and you've, you've, you've taken a heat. <laughs> uh, and uh, as we transition into this new chapter in history, you know, where denial, as you say, will be increasingly a thing of the past and caring about climate action will be more mainstream. I think it's important as we go forward not to forget to also celebrate the people who got us here. And it's someone, someone posted on our Facebook page and they said something to the effect of some of the people, some of these people have passed on already and they never got the recognition they deserved. Thankfully, you'll be with us for some time still to come. Uh, but you're part of that generation, that foundational generation. So I just want to acknowledge that and say thank you for, you know, all the work you've done, the courage you've had, and also for all the shit that you've put up with. Well, I want to, you know, uh, right back at you, I want to um, thank you, uh, you know, Giordano, for uh, what you guys have managed to accomplish with, with Juice Media. Um, humor and satire is just so powerful because it, it helps, it cuts through um, some of the impasses that we often encounter when we're dealing with uh, difficult and contentious issues. Uh, humor is a secret weapon. If I'm going to use the war uh, analogy here, it's a, it's a secret weapon. And, and you have wielded it uh, so effectively with the, the videos and the work that you guys have done. And I really do think that that helped contribute to the awareness that was brought um, uh, by the, by the, the, the Black um, Summer. And I do think Look, we had to take some time out, and we still do, to deal with this pandemic. But we're going to be farther along when we come out of it. I think we're going to be positioned to really make progress. And so I want to thank you and, 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 and your, your entire organization for helping us um, move forward on this. It's, it's an honor to be on the front lines and, uh, and, and, and help out in the, in, the, in the fight, in the war, as you, as you call it. Uh, and last question, when are you coming back to Australia? We're really looking forward to welcome you back here, hopefully soon. Do you have any plans? I, I want to. I, I do think of it as a second home now. I really do feel like... We, um, we, you're very loved here. <laughs> I was down there. Well, I lived, we lived through an experience together. Um, yeah. We lived through the Black uh, Summer and then the pandemic. And I experienced that with Australians. And so I feel, I feel part of that country now. And I am looking forward as soon as uh, you're allowing Americans back in. And that's sort of the real question because of the way we mishandled this pandemic. Um, it will be understandable that some countries won't want Americans coming in for, for some time. But, you know, when we do, uh, when the vaccines are able to, you know, sort of, uh, work their way through the system, um, you know, hopefully in less than a year, I'll be able to make it back down there. I'm looking forward to doing so. Well, in the meantime, it's been really great having you here with us virtually. Professor Michael Mann, thank you so much. Uh, the New Climate War, you can find that it's just out in Australia now. We'll include the links in the show notes and the video description. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
that brings us to the end of this special edition of the Juice Media Podcast. As mentioned, this could well be an election year here in Australia. So I hope to invite onto the podcast some of our best science, energy, policy and economics communicators so we can be better informed when it's time to go to the polls. I also plan to spend more time talking about our preferential voting system and the role of independent candidates and the crossbench, issues that will be absolutely crucial in determining the outcome of the election. If you know folks who would benefit from this kind of content, please tell them about the Juice Media Podcast. You can find us on your podcast app. And if you're listening to this podcast on your headphones only, remember that you can also find the video of this and all our podcasts on our YouTube channel, The Juice Media. Lastly, I want to thank all our new patrons who signed up to support us in this new year and who are making it possible for us to embark on another round of Honest Government ads. A special shout out to our producers who support us at the highest tier. Thank you. You've been listening to The Juice Media Podcast with me, Giordano. We'll be back very soon with our first Honest Government ad for 2021. Until then, take care.